0: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Welcome everyone to this Drug Science Podcast. Today we're focusing on MDMA, uh, which is of course the technical chemical term for ecstasy. And my guests today are a doctor, a colleague, Ben Sessa, who's been pioneering the use of MDMA in therapy for alcoholism, and has done the first ever UK trial of MDMA in this disorder, and one of his patients called Chris, who's going to tell us about the experience of going through this rather special trial. So Ben, over to you. Let's kick off. Just tell me a bit about yourself and fill the audience in about your background and how you came into this field in the first place.
1: Sure thing. Uh, Thank you, David. Um, So I've been involved in the field of psychedelic research for getting on for 15 years now. It kind of all started when I met you and Robin at Bristol back in 2005 that I first published in this field. I think it was the first publication in the UK medical press on psychedelics since the 60s when I wrote a review article of what was going on at MAPS. And then been involved in projects with psilocybin and LSD and DMT and ketamine and MDMA over those 15 years in and out of Bristol, Cardiff and Imperial College. And for the last three or four years have been running the UK's first clinical MDMA study. It's a study on alcoholism, which was a departure from PTSD, which were pretty much all the other studies all around the world have been PTSD to date. But my experience as an addiction psychiatrist tells me that there's often quite a lot of childhood trauma often associated with adults who are alcoholic, not everyone, but a great many. So we kind of put two and two together and figured a MDMA study for alcoholism might be a good angle. And the other other thing that informs that for me and in fact all of my work with all of the psychedelics over the last 10-15 years has been my training as a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I have always taken a very developmental approach to adult mental disorder and addictions and so uh, that it, it ties in very neatly with what we do with MDMA. Yeah
0: Ben, I mean one of the things that uh, is very compelling about you when you speak is this contrast you make between how we deal with traumatized children and how our society's attitude and sometimes sadly medicine's attitude to them flips completely when they go through puberty. Well it's interesting we
1: I think within the general public perception we're very tuned to the concept of child abuse and we have all of this gushing sentimentality for these little three four five year old children who are these helpless victims of abuse of some kind or another. But I think what the general public forget is what happens to those four or five-year-olds when they become 10, 11, 12, start wearing hoodies, nicking mopeds, buying and selling drugs, find themselves to heroin and amphetamine and alcohol and crack cocaine, and suddenly they've become this public enemy number one. Uh, You know, you meet somebody in their 30s, 40s, 50s with a substance misuse, and the average member of the general public will be, pull yourself together, you could stop if you wanted to it's a lifestyle choice um i'm not going to give you any money it's just going to facilitate your addiction you could you know it, it's your fault you're weak but we we've turned off our own empathy switches to the developmental roots of most of those addictions and i think this is terrible in two ways firstly it's obviously morally and ethically vile to not treat everyone with compassion but secondly it's missing a very important piece of science. This is perhaps the strongest effect size in all of psychiatry. You damage a child, you produce a damaged adult. Um, So it's poor science to forget that developmental trajectory and not really focus on that. So my my work as a child psychiatrist has been really informative for my work as an adult
0: psychiatrist. Thank you. So Chris, do you want to say a few words about introduce yourself and uh, how you came across Ben and share whatever you'd like?
2: Yeah, thanks David. Uh, My name's Chris. I relied on alcohol early on in my life, but became addicted, and through a work-related issue, I was got stressed at work, I got anxiety, got depressed, and then the alcohol was a way of coping with that, as I thought, and before I knew it, I was addicted, and because of the addiction, I got involved with a, with a group called Ad Action, which is based in Western Supermare, and I was going to these um, sessions, and... It tended to help quite a lot with all the counselling, etc., but it never really sorted me out. It, it, I kept relapsing, kept relapsing, and I couldn't see any way of getting out of that, whatever help I was being given. And Ben came into the group asking for volunteers back in October, probably 2018, and I put my hand up because I was thinking... I just want something to help me. So I got involved with Ben from October to December that year. And as far as I'm concerned, it was, it was a miracle for me. It actually was a miracle. And I'm so glad I, I, I went for it and, you know, stuck by it and did everything I was told. And here I am today, you know, still cured and living life.
0: Thanks. Thanks a lot, Chris. And we'll come back and ask you to tell us about the experience of going through the trial in a, in a few moments. Sure. Right. Okay. But first, Ben, so just set the scene a little bit more. So maybe we could start at the beginning, you know, to explain to people a little bit about what MDMA is and how it's different from ecstasy and why they were using it for PTSD, etc. Can you give us, give the listeners a bit of the background, please?
1: Okay, so MDMA is a synthetic chemical, 3,4-methylindioxymethamphetamine. Uh, methamphetamine. is a, a chemical that has both stimulatory effects, the amphetamine part of the molecule, but it also has mild psychedelic or consciousness-altering effects. And it started its life as a, a research chemical back in the 60s and then in the 70s, where it was being used by a group of therapists who had been using LSD psychotherapy in the 60s before it was banned, and then they moved on to MDMA in the 70s while it was still legal. And it showed some great promise as a tool to assist particularly trauma-focused psychotherapy in the late 70s and early 80s. But then, similar to LSD, it followed that path whereby it leaked from the medical community, became popularly used. It then got banned in 1985, which very effectively stopped all the medical research. But, of course, banning things doesn't stop recreational use. In fact, it usually increases recreational use. And then we had the whole rave scene that happened in the late 80s and throughout the 90s, in which ecstasy, which uh, was what MDMA is, uh, ecstasy is supposedly MDMA, um, became demonized and banned and heavily popularized by culture, which stopped all the medicine in its tracks. And then in the last 10 or 15 years, it started to be Um, looked at again. Uh, The the drug works in a a remarkable way. I think the best way of summing up its effects pharmacologically is it selectively impairs the fear response whilst leaving the other faculties intact. Now, that's a very important statement. Uh, There are many drugs that impair fear response. A bottle of vodka will impair fear response a bag of heroin will impair fear response, which is why those are the two most popularly used drugs by people with trauma. But what MDMA does, unlike those other drugs, is it leaves the other faculties clear. You can think, you can remember, you can debate, you can reflect, you can talk about your childhood, but the fear part of your brain is switched off. And this is Um, an effect it has on a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is a very primitive part of the brain that fires in response to stress and fear. On MDMA, that part of the brain is completely turned off. So the patient can go to difficult thoughts and memories, places that normally would be avoided and forbidden. But on MDMA, they can find themselves talking about it with great clarity. And crucially, they remember it stays. They don't have to be high to remember what they've done. So it's the perfect tool to assist trauma-focused psychotherapy. Because if you look at disorders like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, 50% of sufferers with PTSD develop a lifelong chronic disorder. And the reason being, they cannot engage in psychotherapy. Because the moment you ask them to talk about their traumatic incident, whether it's a childhood trauma incident or whatever, they disassociate, they turn off, they drop out of the treatment and they go back to the drink because they just don't want to go there to that painful memory ever again. On MDMA, you find you can talk about these things that normally you would avoid because this fear is turned off. Now, that makes it a remarkably important tool because... Not just PTSD, but I would say the majority of anxiety-based disorders are due to rigidity and stuckness in one's own personal or world narrative, that you just don't want to go there. So a drug that allows you to go there in a controlled medical setting is an absolute game-changer in the field of psychotherapy.
0: So in America, there's this uh, charity called MAPS, which has been pioneering uh, really ever since MDMA was was made illegal. Uh, the the therapeutic use. And they've got quite advanced, haven't they? I think they're now in a multi-centre phase, what you might call phase two, phase three study in PTSD. So they started, um, in fact, MAPS was formed in
1: 1985 in the wake of the banning of MDMA. So Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, was one of the people involved in those early uh, court trials about banning MDMA and came out of that with, well, I'm going to set up an organisation that brings MDMA back to medicine. So he's been on this heroic 35-year battle to bring it where we are. And it's now in what you call the phase three stage of development, which is to get the drug approved and licensed as a treatment for PTSD. All over the world, there are now studies, dozens of studies going on, and they're pooling all the data with the hope that MDMA will be licensed by the end of 2021, early 2022, for PTSD. But What happened with our study here in Bristol is we were going to do a study on PTSD and then we had this wonderful funding opportunity that came out of the blue where um, I was just asked if you had a a big bunch of money, what would you do? And I said, well, I probably wouldn't do PTSD or imaging because neither of those things hugely interest me. I would do a study on alcohol because A, it interests me, B, it's a massive public health problem, a huge burden on society, individuals, family, the taxpayer, the NHS, the judiciary, the courts, children, families. It's an enormous public health problem. It's understudied. And I have this hypothesis that if MDMA works for PTSD, then it's going to work for addictions. So that's what kind of brought us around to doing this study here
0: in Bristol. Yeah, but in fact, you went off to America to get trained, didn't you?
1: Yeah. So at that stage, I think even now, in order to become an official official MDMA psychotherapist, you have to do it through MAPS. So I did some training here in the UK and in Holland. And then I went over to the States and took part in MDMA assisted psychotherapy as a subject. So I had all the preparation sessions and the integration sessions. And I also had two guided drug sessions with MDMA in a clinical
0: setting. So uh, that was a really interesting part of the training. So you're a fully-fledged, trained MDMA therapist, one of the very few in the UK. Well, yeah, not only that, but also now
1: a fully-fledged, trained psilocybin therapist. And I don't think there's any any other pair other than myself and Laurie Higbed, the co-therapist, that have the dual training in both of those. And we're about to go over to Barcelona and become trained in uh, ketamine-assisted
0: psychedelic therapy. Super. Well, well done. There's a lot of work involved in getting to that state. Now, what about Chris? I mean, you... You're sitting there in a a psychotherapy group talking about how to stop drinking and then someone comes in and starts talking to you about MDMA. I mean, had you heard of MDMA at that point?
2: I didn't know that ecstasy was called MDMA. I've never taken a drug in my life. I was very naive as to the drug itself or any of the drugs. Um, I hear about the drugs, but I didn't know this MDMA existed as such in that form because I, I gather it's a very pure Uh, form of ecstasy that's the difference
0: yes it's certified that's the fact (laughs) yeah
2: yeah i mean ben did tell me how much it costs for um a a certain amount compared to the street value and i was absolutely astounded but to me i'm I'm a a scientist um Uh and i think i needed something that would change my, the chemicals in my brain or like, whether you put electrodes on them or something that I, I had a lot of faith in that sort of idea. Um, surely there's something can be done that can reset my head, if you see what I mean.
0: So you, you had a sense in which your head had been sort of disrupted by the stress at work and, and you'd then turned to alcohol and the chronic alcohol also, obviously because alcohol is a drug and it, it changes the brain profoundly, so you had that sense your brain had been changed.
2: That's right. Yeah. Um, But the thing is with the alcohol is that, you know, you you rely on it so much. The addiction takes over your life. And when they say you're um, a functioning alcoholic, I think I was because I could go to work out of my tree and do my job, which is very worrying considering I work with machinery and electrical equipment and stuff like that. And I was not happy and I wanted to break that, Mm. break that mold. I really wanted to.
0: And what did your family and friends say when you said you were going to go into a, uh, an ecstasy I think trial? They,
2: they were desperate as much as me for, to change, to get something that's going to help me. Um, very scared, like I was. Um, I remember the, the first session of taking the drug. I was actually shaking. Uh, ben would remember that, I expect.
0: Um, well, could you tell us a little bit? I'm interested in, was that because of all the things you'd heard in the media about the dangers of it?
2: Yeah, um, because I was number six, apparently, in the world to have this session, not taking drugs before, I didn't know what to expect, which is a bit scary, but it's, I'm, I'm glad I went through it. I'm really glad I, 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 I saw it through. What with all the support from uh, Ben and Laurie as well that went with it, because the clinical trial wasn't just about taking the drug, it was all the support that goes with it. It was over three months of intense therapy from Dr. Ben and Laurie, um, which helped with the drug.
0: Okay, well, let's come on to the process of the trial now then. So so, let me go back to Ben. So this isn't just dropping a pill of ear at a party, this isn't it? Talk us through what the actual envelope of the therapy is, please.
1: Okay, well, in line with all psychedelic therapy, you're quite right, it's not just taking the drug. Psychedelics, like MDMA and other psychedelics, work when in combination with psychotherapy. So if you just take the drug at a party or otherwise just on its own, it would have a minimal effect, but not particularly clinically beneficial. When we combine the drug with preparation sessions and then post-drug integration sessions, we really get the full benefit. So what we designed was an eight-week course of psychotherapy, which were weekly sessions, face-to-face, what we call two-to-one psychotherapy, so two therapists, a male-female team, myself and Dr. Higbed. Eight weeks, weekly sessions, And on two occasions, the patient takes MDMA. So over the course of that eight weeks, they only take the MDMA twice. Most of the sessions that are the non-drug sessions are face-to-face outpatient appointments. And the two MDMA sessions last all day long. And um, then the patient stays overnight in the clinic for the therapy sessions. Like all research, it's very heavily regulated and governed. We screen patients carefully. We exclude certain mental health or physical health problems. Patients have blood tests and ECGs. They're thoroughly monitored throughout. During the course of the MDMA sessions, they have their blood pressure and temperature done every half hour and then hourly, and then they stay overnight. And then they, after the MDMA sessions, they get telephone calls daily for a week after each session. And then they get followed up at three months, six months, and nine months in which we're looking at a whole bunch of different things like physical health, mental health, addiction, drug use, alcohol use, and general functioning right up to nine months. So it's got all the rigors of of any good human psychopharmacology study with the extra complication of working with a Schedule One banned drug, which creates an awful lot of other hassles, and particularly financial hassles, to do this sort of research. So it's a real challenge, and we're really grateful to pioneers such as Chris and the other 14 people who took part in the study.
0: So, Chris, before I ask Ben to explain what she's trying to do during an MDMA session... Um,
2: the way um, that Ben described it, and actually what happened is... Um, During the MDA session, um, when you take the drug, obviously there's a period where you're thinking it's suddenly going to happen and you're going to go like crazy or something. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what I was expecting. But it was like a mellow build-up, as Mm -hmm. I call it. Um, Mm -hmm. And the way it's described is like you're taxiing along a runway in an airplane and you're getting ready to take off and you're starting to climb. Um, and when you reach your altitude, you you then cruise. And this is exactly what happened. And as you're cruising, you get to a point where you're asked if you want to go a bit further so we, we can have another another pill to take you further. And during this time, it just opens up your mind, it really gets to the back of your head and you're talking about all those things that you've hidden in the back of your head for so many years. About like your horror stories, your nightmares, things that happened when you were a child that you don't want to talk about. It all comes to the front and I think I suffered with verbal diarrhea when all this was going on and it really did open up my mind. But, but what's so different is I can still remember it now because I was awake the whole mm-hmm. time this is happening. Mm-hmm. I wasn't put to sleep, you know, it was like I'm, I'm still there now.
0: <laughs> I think that's the point isn't it Ben, the point is to actually get people to access the traumas and then for you and the the other therapists to help them make sense of them and overcome them
1: yeah absolutely um in some ways it's not it's not like it uncovers stuff that you didn't know was there it's it rather frees you up to talk about stuff that you know very well is there but you normally would just avoid um Uh like the plague so, I don't know, for example, not, not Chris's case, but take somebody who's been sexually abused as a child. By the time they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, they have become absolute experts at never going to that memory. That night when they're eight years old, they've put it away and they will not go there. Now, the memory is still there and it, it intrudes in all sorts of other ways, like their alcoholism or their PTSD. But if you ask them in a the therapeutic setting, tell me about that night when you were raped they're out the door. What the MDMA does is it it just switches off that normal avoidance and fear. And it's quite amazing seeing the look on patients' faces when I say to them, can you tell me about that night? And they're like, wow, yes, I can. I can tell you in great detail this happened, that happened. And they're amazed at themselves. They say, I can't believe I can talk about this. I've spent the last 40 years suppressing this, doing anything to avoid that memory, drinking, heroin, whatever, And now I can tell you in great detail, and I'm going to talk to you about it for the next six hours. And like Chris says, the next day when I asked them, you know, you talked a lot yesterday. Was it just mumbo-jumbo? Was it gobbledygook? Were you just high? Can you even remember? They always say, I remember every single word of it. I can stand by it. I can recall it. And what's weird is, although I'm not high now, I feel like I've done the work that I needed to do with that memory. So what we're doing is we're moving that 50% of treatment-resistant people into the 50% who can do trauma-focused psychotherapy. So in a way, it's not that miraculous. It's not kind of uncovering new memories that they didn't know they had. It's simply giving them a platform and space to do the psychotherapeutic work that the other 50% that do respond to normal treatment benefit from. So I think of MDMA as a life jacket or a bulletproof vest that you can wear to go into battle with your trauma, and it's just about bearable. You know, this is not ecstasy. They're not digging this in some beautiful euphoric buzz. It's still difficult hard trauma focused psychotherapy there's no question of that it's it's a challenge for patients to talk about childhood trauma but with mdma on board they can just about do it which
0: moves them into this treatment respondent group there's a wonderful quote from the mithoffers who the were the pioneers of this therapy Uh, and it it is one of their vets who'd been through exactly the same treatment the the 125 milligrams and then the top up after Mm. a couple of hours of 67.5 and uh, it's a wonderful quote from him saying when he came out after seven hours of working through his traumas and his memories, he said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy, because yeah. it was clearly a lot of hard work. And it, it, it's, the, yeah. it's the working on the repression and, and, uh, and the emotions which are, which are attached to the memories that they get in the way of your life that uh, is really challenging and difficult. And what's the purpose of doing it twice? Why did you have two sessions?
1: Well, we we looked at the MAPS protocol for treatment of PTSD and it was a very unwieldy thing. It was like 17 or 18 weeks. It was three sessions. There was a crossover and all this kind of complex stuff. We wanted to make it smaller than that. We wanted it to be MDMA light, partly because of how much money and time we had. But also we wanted to demonstrate to the UK regulatory authorities that this is something that's clinically deliverable on the NHS. And so we we wanted to truncate it a little. So we went for eight weeks and two sessions. A couple of reasons for this. I mean, Chris highlighted it. In the first session, if patients are MDMA naive, which about 50% of them were, there's a lot of anxiety, you know, about what is this drug. And I think that impairs the response for the first half of the first session, because they're really worried about what's going to happen. What's interesting about MDMA is it's highly tolerable. Once you experience it and you feel it, you suddenly realize you had nothing to worry about. It's actually really, really beautiful, lovely feeling. There's few drugs in psychopharmacology that are so predictively pleasurable. MDMA is one. The others would be the opiates. Um, you know, we're hardwired. I, when I'm lecturing medical students on this, I say to them, If you don't like heroin, you don't have a brain and you need to go to a neurologist and have yourself checked out. You know, we are hardwired to enjoy that experience. Mm, And similarly with MDMA, and this is why I favor it over the classic psychedelics at the moment, LSD, psilocybin, powerful agents. But that sort of experience could go either way. You know, it can be hellish as well. You don't really get a bad trip on MDMA It either works or it doesn't. But there's only one researcher in the country who manages to create a negative affect on MDMA. But almost everyone that takes MDMA tolerates the experience. And I think that's really important when designing a a, a drug for clinical practice. It has to be tolerable. So by having the second session two weeks, three weeks later... By then the patient's really primed, they know what to expect and they really knuckle down and just get straight into the work that they want to do. But the most important thing of the support sessions, the non-drug sessions that sandwich each of the drug sessions, that's where they really do the work. That's where they unpick and integrate the stuff that came out on MDMA and they start Towards the end of the eight week course, they start looking at how they can bring this back, how they can make lifestyle changes, how the realizations that they've made on MDMA can be fed into their everyday lifestyle, their relationships, their work, their partners to make effective change going forward. So it's the the totality of these drug and non-drug sessions that make it work.
0: And just uh, for those many, many listeners who will be out there, they will have taken MDMA, or ecstasy anyway, and uh, they want to know what dose you were using. I mean, can you equate it to what the street dose is?
1: We we
0: went for 125
1: milligrams initially, followed by half that dose, 62.5 milligrams two hours later. So 187 milligrams in the MDMA session, which they do twice, spaced three weeks apart. That seems like quite a lot, Ben. It it is, it is. Um, I mean, it's hard to compare it to street doses because what is a street dose and what even is ecstasy? But Mm. ecstasy could be anything between zero and 350 milligrams in a tablet. So Mm. it's impossible to tell. But 187 milligrams is a good hefty dose. Um, Any MDMA user or ecstasy user would recognize that as a good hefty dose. Now, the reason we chose that is partly because it's pretty well tested by MAPS for their PTSD work, that same regime of 125 followed by half that. But you want to, we know it's a very safe drug. That's a very important thing, especially when you're measuring physiological parameters. Just explain what you mean. Not everyone will understand what a physiological parameter is. Okay. Yeah. So if you take a drug like psilocybin or LSD, very powerful psychedelics, physically, they do virtually nothing virtually inert physically. They don't change your body in any way. Slight pupils increase, but that's it. MDMA has a slightly higher toll on the body. It raises your blood pressure slightly, it raises your temperature slightly, it raises your heart rate slightly. Usually not within any dangerous limits, but just a little bit. You get an increase that plateaus over a course of about four or five hours and then comes down. So we measure blood pressure, heart rate and temperature throughout the sessions just to check that that stays in, in check there. In terms of the safety of MDMA, otherwise, it's, it's one of these subjects that was subject to terrific media bias in the mid-90s. When I started looking at this in the mid-90s, there was a sort of 50-50 split within the psychopharmacology community about is MDMA neurotoxic? If you look at the, the psychopharmacology community now, it's about 98-2 in terms of that split. Almost <laughs> everybody has moved on to the realization that the actual risk of MDMA toxicity is incredibly low. If you think how widespread ecstasy use is, we're looking at 750,000 doses of MDMA are taken every weekend in the UK for the last quarter of a century. 25 years of three quarters of a million doses every weekend. Yet the actual rates of morbidity and mortality are staggeringly low, less than 10 or 20 a year once other drugs are excluded. So we've almost been doing a 25-year epidemiology study on the toxicity of MDMA, and the results are staggeringly low. So we know it's very safe, but we do have to check those physiological aspects, and especially in people with a history of alcohol, because people with alcohol often have a slightly raised blood pressure. They may have uh, abnormal liver function and those kinds of issues. So we have to take those um, precautions as part of the ethics
0: so it's pretty important we're not telling people to go and get their own E and go home and self medicate because they could get elevations in blood pressure heart rate etc which could particularly if they've got a history of alcoholism we're not we're, we're not recommending self medication are we
1: Um no we certainly we can't recommend anybody goes out and breaks the law and uses any drug that's not been recommended by a doctor in a clinical setting having said that there'd be a lot safer if they were to do that than to go and drink four pints of stella which has a far greater toxic effect than ecstasy we know that for certain so i think all drugs need to be taken with great care and attention i think when you're doing research you obviously have these very high levels of risk aversion and margins of um, scrutiny that far outstrip the way they're used recreationally and you know this is why it's sometimes frustrating working with these kinds of schedule 1 compounds because the tremendous costs involved and the tremendous levels of safety involved, yet down the street there's a 13-year-old selling ecstasy to thousands of kids that are all going to take it toxic-free, in the vast majority of cases, that weekend. So it's uh, it's one of those strange worlds we live in.
0: Sure. Well, let's get on to the question of uh, did it work? So I'm going to go back to Chris now. So you've already told us it it did, but tell us a little bit more about kind of what it was like afterwards. So did you stop drinking straight away or did you slowly give up or, or, or what happened?
2: Well, as, as, part, as
0: part of the trial, um, I remember
2: when I first sort of um, got involved, I was still drinking and I, I had to detox myself uh-huh. before I could go on the trial. So I had to discipline myself before I even got going. Um, but what happened with all the um, the therapy is that it, it, I didn't want to drink anymore because I was looking as as this is the way out now. This is my hope, and I just want to go back about the two different sessions of the MDMA. The first session, I was I say I was a bit apprehensive, I was worried, I was concerned. All those things that came to the front of my head, as I say, were all negative. Mm -hmm. Everything was negative about my father being a big man that uh, shouted at me. The nightmares I used to have as a child. I remember crying and going into my mother's room and all that. And what happened is the the MDMA helped me deal with that because there was no fear. There was no fear. I could face them, all these demons, if you like. And the demons actually became friendly in, in my recollection of them. And the difference between the two sessions is the first session, everything was negative. But the second session, everything was nice. Everything was wonderful. All those things that were bad were now good. And it was like something's happened to me, to my body, that's changed. And the way I look at it, even now, is that... When you have a computer and it gets viruses and things like that, mm-hmm. and you do what they call a defrag, that means it like sets it back to ground zero and puts everything back in the right place. And that's exactly what it did to my brain. And I'm pretty confident that's how it was. Put everything back in the right place. And then that then helped me start again, as I call it, and then not have this desire to drink or you have all these worries and stress all this anxiety, everything went away. And I could then move on with my life, which is where I am now still. And it's been a, a journey. And, but as Ben was saying, it wasn't just the, the drug. It was all the therapy that went with it. It was actually ideal. Something we did discuss is if I didn't have the MDMA, would it have worked anyway? Yes. My feeling is no, because something physically happened to my brain difficult to explain. I, I call it like a hard reset.
0: No, well, that sounds like what happened between the first and the second trip, wasn't it? The first one, yeah. you were, things were negative. The second one, you could everything
2: see. Was, everything was jumbled up, yeah. And then the second thing, everything was in line again um, and I could deal with it. So that's how I've, I've moved on without having to rely on a drink anymore to, to deal with my life. You know, to, I've gone obviously gone back to work for so a job
0: great success but let's ask ben about how many people did you put through ben and what were the outcomes so we've had
1: 14 people in the mdma study and the outcomes are fantastic now because it was a what we call an open label safety and tolerability proof concept study there was no control group there's no placebo there's no control group all of the subjects get two sessions of mdma therapy they all know that we all know that it's not double blind so That means we can't really assess drinking outcome because we don't know for certain, is it the MDMA or is it just all this wonderful
0: psychotherapy? Can I just hold you one second? Now, Mm. some people might say, well, that's not science. What's the point of doing a non-randomized, non-blinded study? Yeah,
1: so it it doesn't sound very methodologically um, uh, secure, does it? But no, the thing is, whenever you do a new drug in a new condition, you have to start with a safety and tolerability open label study so you're quite right the the more scientifically sound would be to that now do a randomized control study in which half the group get placebo and half get mdma and that will be the next stage but the mhra and the ethics committee insist that you start with an open label safety and tolerability study so that's why we did it
0: and it was tolerated no
1: dropouts um no dropouts two people didn't have a second session Um, for for two different clinical reasons, but the other, everybody had at least one session and most people apart from two had the whole full eight weeks and the two sessions. Um, Now in terms of outcomes, what we did before this study is we did a, what we call an observational study. We looked at how treatment as usual was working in Bristol for people with alcohol detoxes. So we just followed them up and looked at all the different treatments they were getting, rehab, AA, anti-craving drugs, group therapy, individual therapy, CBT, etc. And we looked at what their outcomes were. Now at six months post-detox, that observational group, 76% of them were back to their full-time drinking. So six months after their alcohol detox and the very best that traditional medicine can throw at you for the treatment of your drinking, 76% were back to where they started at six months. With the MDMA study, so far with the results in, at six months, 6% of people are back to where they were drinking. Now, that is a remarkable outcome, however you look at it. Now, as we've said, it could be the therapy; it might not be the MDMA. But one way or the other, we've demonstrated an incredible effect in terms of this sort of treatment for treating alcoholism at six months. Uh, ben, you were
0: you were the therapist in the other study, so weren't you?
1: In the observational study, we weren't yeah. providing therapy; we just followed them up as to how they were doing with oh, all I the see. traditional treatments available. So it was a it's what you call a treatment as usual group. Yeah. Now, the, part of the reason we chose alcoholism was because it is so hard to treat. Um, If you look at the actual statistics, at three years, 90% of people are drinking again post-detox with traditional treatments. That's appalling. You know, we were doing better at treating alcoholism in the Victorian times than we are today um, by some pretty brutal methods like the temperance movement and that kind of thing. But nevertheless, we were treating alcoholism better 100 years ago than we do today. That's outrageous. And I can't understand how the psychiatric profession allows that to happen when it's such a big public health problem. So this is why we chose alcoholism. So if those results stand up to scrutiny, 76% without MDMA, 6% with MDMA, that blows out of the water the very best treatments available for treating alcoholism. So we're really, really pleased with the results. We need to do a lot more research, but this is a remarkable outcome.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. Well done. And over to Chris. So would you recommend this as a... uh, to, to your friends who are drinking too much and, and to the health service? Definitely. I've,
2: I've spoken to family members um, about this and and they're well aware of how well I've done out of it and can see the results. And they are then recommended to people they know that have you know, alcohol issues. But the thing is about the trial is you've got to be well enough to be on the trial. You can't be too unwell, which is something that Ben has to uh, work with. Um, because obviously it's a trial, and if anybody gets ill or whatever, then it ruins the whole trial. So the thing as well, I'm, I was going to a lot of uh, AA sessions. I haven't recently, for uh, obvious reasons. But um, the AA is always it seems to revolve around the relig- religious side, and they talk about God, and I always thought it was the higher power. And I never could find this higher power. But the MDMA is my higher power. As far as i 'm concerned, that 's been my fix, and, and I, I, I go by that, so when I go into those sessions and they talk about the higher power, I go immediately and they say they wish they wish there was a magic pill, and I put my hand up and said, <laughs> "Yes, there is and, and then what <laughs> and did they say? Um, They don't believe me.
0: (laughs) Uh Aha, yes. Maybe
1: you don't realise, Chris, but you know the founder of AA, Bill Wilson, he actually had six very informative LSD experiences. And when he drafted the concept of the higher power, he was thinking about the psychedelic experience under LSD. So it's interesting that you've brought this full circle, and after your MDMA work, that's how you see it. So that was the original designation of the higher power.
0: Well, he was a remarkable man and uh, his life was transformed like yours was transformed by, by an experience when he could see things so differently. And actually the history, uh, uh, just to fill in a little bit further from what Ben said, is that these drugs were perfectly legal when he was using them. In fact, there were six trials of LSD funded by the National Institutes of Health in America. And overall, the effect was pretty powerful. But as soon as it was made illegal, as soon as they banned it to stop recreational use, which, of course, it didn't do, the ban didn't do, Alcoholics Anonymous refused to allow people to continue the treatments because they said they were breaking the law. So a lot of people have been denied access to therapy of, with drugs like psychedelics and, more recently, MDMA because of their illegality, which it seems to me you know, actually a criminal neglect of people's needs. Mm-hmm. and something that drug science is championing to get changed because it would be wrong even if the ban actually did what it was supposed to do and reduce the harms of recreational drugs. But since the bans don't stop the use, in fact may increase harms, but all they do is virtually deny access to patients, I think that's outrageous uh, uh, censorship of the benefit and that's something that you know, I would mm-hmm. hope we can change. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that... Uh, when Ben's trial gets out there and gets published? When when will that be, Ben?
1: Well, we don't officially finish the last patient until June, all the way up to the nine-month follow-up. So it's going to be some time after that. But we've got a whole team of people working on the data at the moment, and we're kind of pretty much ready to submit the moment the last patient's through the door. So I think in the autumn, the papers will be
0: published. So I'll just remind the listeners to, to look out for that. I'll be tweeting it when it comes out. And and we hope that this will be you know, a, a further impetus for governments, particularly the British government, to take a more rational view of the drug laws and and try to liberate uh, drugs like MDMA from Schedule 1, where it, which basically says it has no medical value, into a, a schedule where it could be used so that Ben and others can carry on this pioneering work, which clearly has got advantages, serious advantages over current therapies for, for some people like Chris.
2: Yeah, just, can I just add that? Please um, do,
0: Chris. Um,
2: basically, you were asking about recommending it to friends. and things. When I was back in the Ad Action group, they were asking me, because I was still going to the sessions, about being addicted to the drug.
0: Um, ah, yes.
2: And, the, and as Ben will say there has been no reports of anybody in ad action being addicted to uh, ecstasy or MDMA. Is that right, Ben?
1: Yeah, I mean, it has a very low dependence potential. We we see this from animal studies and we see this epidemiologically. Like I said, the massive widespread use of ecstasy amongst the general public ecstasy addiction is virtually unheard of. You don't, you don't hear of people robbing people in order to pay for their ecstasy and the typical drug-seeking behaviours like you do with other drugs. So it has a very low dependency potential. And in over 20 years of clinical research and over 2,000 clinical sessions, not one person has gone out and used ecstasy to try and recreate that high of their clinical MDMA.
0: So that's really not a risk. And this is actually one of this misconception is one of the classic perverse consequences of the drug being illegal. People assume that these drugs were made illegal because they were dangerous, harmful and addictive. Hmm. They weren't. They were made illegal because governments didn't like the fact that young people were using them and thinking differently uh, it, and it's rather sad that we've that's denied access to people who need them clinically for decades i think it's it's changing david i think
1: the, the 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 war on drugs is in its final throes there's no question of that it will come to an end in the next five to ten years at the most pretty much everywhere around the world. We will look back and hang our heads in shame at uh, the last 50 years of socio-political folly that was the war on drugs and the millions of wasted lives that have been caused by these erroneous political decisions. There's no question we will look back on that. Just like we look back on the 1920s prohibition of alcohol as a as a laughable folly, we'll do exactly the same thing with the current Misuse of Drugs Act. I'm quite certain of it. But, you know, in the meantime, we we demonize and we fill the prisons and we criminalize and we destroy families for, like you say, policies that don't reduce either the harms, the deaths, or even bizarrely the usage of drugs. So then you, you do have to ask, why are they there? How have they persisted? You know, the next year, the Misuse of Drugs Act is 50 years old. 50 years of an unaudited, unaltered policy. I can't think of any other policies on the British statute books that have gone unaudited for 50 years. You know, we've radically changed the way we look at the police, the judiciary, food standards, transport, health, education, in line with emerging evidence. But the Misuse of Drugs Act is pretty much exactly as it was written in 1971, unaltered, that is extraordinary. And you do have to wonder what sort of forces are keeping that policy in place against the tide of evidence that says it doesn't work.
0: So what's driving it is politics, not science. And I'm glad that you, you Ben, have taken on this uh, challenge of providing some real quality clinical science that we can use to keep ha- hammering on the door till eventually they open and revise it. So we need to wind up now. I want to say thanks to, to both uh, my guests, uh, Chris for sharing you know his traumatic experiences with alcohol and Ben for sharing his vision. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks David.
2: Thank you. Bye.